the Apostle John writes in his third epistle in the 11th verse, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God, and the one who does evil has not seen God. Imitation is a bad word in our day. We, we prefer really to perceive ourselves, I think, as cutting edge, as innovative. We like to be influencers, not influenced. We like to be trendsetters, and you say, well, that, that's not in my heart, and yet how many times have you wanted to claim this statement or that or this thought or that as your own because you're so earnest for people to see you in a particular light, and this pride exists in the human heart, and you can hear it in the quotes of proud men and women. I just found a few for you this week. Quote, it is better to fail in originality than to succeed in imitation. Another, no man was ever great by imitation. And yet another woman said, I wouldn't disrespect myself or my craft with any kind of imitation. Can I tell you, beloved, that God does not subscribe to this proud line of thinking. Jesus' clarion call to any and all who would be saved, the first words out of his mouth were what? Follow me. You cannot come to Christ apart from being an imitator. And the Christian life really could be described as nothing less than a lifelong pursuit of follow the leader. From cradle to grave, humble people, wise people, faithful people are followers whether you lead or not, or whatever capacity God has given you in your domain to be out front, understand that you are not to be original, you are not to be somebody who leads people into a new path, but you are to follow a well-worn path and lead those who are under your care in that path. We have been considering Paul's words in the third chapter of Philippians and we're nearing the end of a section in which Paul has helped us to understand having been justified by faith in Christ that we are destined ultimately to a glorious resurrection in Christ to eternal life and in between those two great realities that Christ has justified us, he has declared us not guilty, he has provided for us a righteousness that we cannot earn in our, our own goodness. And out here, this glorification, which is the end of everyone who's justified in Christ, there is this period that we call life. And that in that life, Christ saved us for a purpose that we might lay hold of that for which we were laid hold of by Christ, namely the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, or in a word, sanctification. We are to be growing in this life in Christ-likeness. Now that we've been saved by Christ and will ultimately be glorified and made into the exact likeness of Christ, 
We are to stretch forward, in Paul's words, striving toward holiness. We, like Paul, are to know Christ. We are to seek to be conformed to Christ. And one of the great and primary means by which that growth happens is through imitation. We are to be followers of others. And I know that that strikes against the John Wayne in you. I know that that strikes out against American individualism. But it is the words that are clearly laid out in our text, and there is no arguing with it. So humble yourselves under these things and understand that we grow by imitation. The theoretical becomes practical for us when we see it in somebody else. I was thinking about this this week, and Charles and I were talking a bit, and I think probably the greatest growth, the the most significant advances that I have made in the Christian life are not so much because of things I heard, but it's been because of things that I have seen in the lives of other people, others who are pursuing Christ. We learn best when we learn by doing And doing is best done when we see it done by someone else first. You can learn things by trial and error, but it is not a great way to learn, frankly. Far better to see someone who knows how to do it right and to follow them. Most of what I've learned and I've learned deeply, I've learned by seeing it first. And this is just the pattern of education, isn't it? We know this. As parents, we know this personally in our own lives, that that you must hear something and then see it and then copy it. You do it. This is the way we learn. And imitation has profound power. It it leaves really what, what amounts to almost an indelible mark. There are plenty of adults paying $200 an hour to get psychologists to help them get out from under the influence of the things that they learn from their parents. Now, this comes as both good news and bad, depending on the kinds of examples that you've had to follow. But there are plenty of examples, Paul says, in the church, some of them good, most of them, many of them anyway, bad. And you need to know, and I need to know, exactly who to pay attention to. So many of us are like junior hires, and we tend to gravitate in our ignorance towards examples that we think are cool, that align with us, they they appeal to us in some way, shape, or form, but they're not the examples that our parents really hoped that we would follow. You see, Paul in this text is going to tell the Philippians that they need to flee from certain examples and all the while pursue getting into the footsteps of other godly examples that they have around them. Paul calls the Philippians in Philippians 3 to godly imitation, to pursue godly imitation. Let's look at it, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even weeping, 
that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. In our text this morning, we see two examples contrasted. There is, on the one hand, a call to follow examples of godly maturity. And we see that in verse 17. And then verses 18 and 19 are given as a caution, really, regarding examples of those who are, in fact, according to Paul, enemies of the cross. And you would think that enemies of the cross would be obvious, but apparently they're not. Because Paul is having to warn these people of these enemies who exist among them. And many have fallen under their spell. Well, let's look first at the call to follow examples of godly maturity. Verse 17, and we've touched on this already and I won't spend as much time on it this morning. But Paul says, brethren, join in following my example. You remember Paul has talked about the fact that that, that these Judaizers who had come into the church and tried to mislead the people into thinking that you needed Jesus plus Moses, you needed grace plus works if you wanted to really be complete in Christ. Paul says, I've rejected all of that. I reject my own self-righteousness. Instead, I want to be found in Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to be conformed to Christ. I am pursuing with all my might the upward call of Christ in obedience I want to become increasingly what I already am in Christ. And Paul, on the heels of this, says, follow my example. You can look at my life, and you ought to seek to imitate me. We don't come out of the womb, spiritually speaking, knowing how to live the Christian life. We need to be, in the words of Scripture, discipled. We need to be learners who are taught. We need to grow. And as I pointed out a number of weeks ago, this is why we so desperately need one another in the church of Christ. A church is not a building. It's not a place you merely attend. It is a place where you rub elbows committedly with people. And it is through that fellowship that we share with one another that we grow together in Christ's likeness. This is the pursuit that we are to have. And and Paul says, look, I've taught you the word of God. And I have set before you an example of that teaching. And this is just the way we learn, isn't it? We see someone suffer well in really trying circumstances and we learn something about how to suffer for Christ's sake. We see someone and we, we, we mark their discipline and their self-denial and their pursuit of godliness and, and, and it, it inspires us to greater faithfulness ourselves. Some of you men will, will align with this, but I grew up an athlete too. I grew up liking all the rough and tumble too. I would much prefer to bounce a basketball than read a book But how many men simply dismiss reading for the entirety of their lives? 
because they don't pursue growing. Beloved, praise be to God, I do not pat myself on the back, but he put me in a place where I had to begin to learn to read that was part of the discipline of the Christian faith so that I might grow with respect to salvation. I got to seminary and I found guys who read 50, 60 pages of stuff that was as dry as beef jerky. How do they do it? And I'd find out later that that guy was a college football player. And I, what, what happened to you? He says, well, I got here thinking like you thought, but it didn't take me long to see the examples of those around me. And I realized that if, if they can do this, well, then I want to aspire to that myself. And this is the very thing that Paul is saying. We learn how to forgive. How? By being forgiven ourselves of great transgression. Forgive one another. Why? Well, because God has forgiven you in Christ. You ought to do it the same way. And then you encounter it in a brother in Christ, and then you go, oh, man, I really messed up. I really sinned against that guy. And yet he, he loves me, and he, he still fellowships with me, and he didn't run off because we had a relational conflict. We see people who are steadfast in their faith, and we learn not to be so emotional and up and down and God loves me today and hates me tomorrow. No, we, we get grounded in theology and we hear that person tell us, you know what, God's love for you in Christ is eternal. The issue of your, your sin has been dealt with at the cross. Brother, you need to grow up and quit being so weepy about all this stuff. You need to strengthen yourself in your faith and know that if you're forgiven in Christ, you are in fact forgiven and God loves you. The evidence of that is the giving of his son Take stock in it. And all of a sudden you look and it puts hair on your spiritual chest, man. It really does. You see the boldness of somebody's witness for Christ and you realize in minute two, you'd have gone home whimpering. And you go, no, look at how that guy can take a bullet for Jesus. Why am I so timid? We learn to pray by being among people who pray. Brothers, we gather on Fridays. Are you there learning to pray? Are you imitating the examples of others among you who are further down the road in the faith than you are? Because this church needs you to pray. We need you to pray. You see, Paul didn't merely give a little talk and then go home. He preached the word and then he lived it in such a way that it was commensurate with his preaching and it was powerful to transform people. And Paul says, I'm going to speak the word of God to you and then I will live that godly word before you. And this is the pattern, beloved, for each one of us, whether in our homes or in life in general. We are to teach people the truth of the word of God and then live it out. And we should be able to say with the apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. You are not Charles Barkley. You are a role model. I've heard people say, I don't want to live in a fishbowl. You should. You're a light in the darkness. 
Christ lives in you, that he might live through you and shine his light through your life. And that will bring upon you all kinds of notoriety. A lot of it will be challenging and hard because people will bristle. But to some, you're going to be an aroma of life to life. Time and again, Paul says in his epistles, follow me as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.16, therefore I exhort you, I preach to you, I'm, de- I'm declaring this, you be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. 1 Thessalonians, Paul commended the Thessalonians because they had, quote, become imitators of him and of the Lord. It's good to study the life of the apostle Paul. And most of you, I assume, would affirm that. And yet I want you to think about it for a minute because oftentimes we study the life of Christ or we study the life of Paul or we study the life of of these folks. and, and, And what's the rationale in your head? It's, well, of course Jesus lived the way he lived. He was what? God. And of course Paul denied himself the way he did because he was an... Apostle. You see, we dismiss ourselves from the very thing, we insulate ourselves from the very thing that Paul here is commanding. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And can I say you ought to aspire to live a life so godly and committed to the Lord that you could say to someone else mercifully, brother, sister, Follow me. Just get on my heels. I'll show you how to do it. You copy me, Paul says. Imitate me. Now, I love this. Look down at the text again. Verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, there are others who live godly lives. I'm not the only example you have, Paul says. The the companions of mine are not the only example you have. We're not some spiritual super crowd. We, we, We know that the Lord works in your own midst, and there are people who already are walking after the pattern that you have in us, and you need to identify those people. He says, observe them. In other words, the the word means to keep the eye carefully trained or fixed upon. What does this tell us again? That in order to be an imitator, you've you've got to be consciously pursuing Christ's likeness and aware, looking and evaluating lives around this place and saying, who are the people who are seeking Christ with a whole heart? Who are the people who walk in the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ? And then you watch their life. You get near to them. You spend time with them. You walk with them. And you imitate them. In chapter 2, Paul had already commended Timothy and Epaphroditus, both as faithful men who ought to be emulated. We know in the book of Hebrews, we're given Hebrews chapter 11, where we're told about a whole bunch of really faithful men and women who stand as examples of faith. Yeah, they were not perfect, and nor are we, and therefore we're encouraged by that, right? But they were an example of faith and patience and suffering in their pursuit of the heavenly kingdom. 
In Hebrews 13, 7, the author to the Hebrews says, remember those who led you. You see, you've got to think about them, consider them. What would they do? And they spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, in other words, evaluate the fruit of their life, and if it fits, then imitate their faith, he says. Here's the point. You should be earnest in your pursuit of living a godly life. And in part of that earnestness is manifested, yes, in your own study of the scriptures. Part of that earnestness, yes, is manifested in your own commitment to a prayer life. Part of that growth in Christ-likeness is, is being zealous to, to, to put on all that we're called to put on in scripture, the fruit of the spirit and, and abounding in those things. But part of this too is having an eye for those who live these things out and getting close on their heels. And God has been gracious, hasn't he? To, to, to give us godly examples from the pages of scripture, from church history, from biographies that we could read that have been written throughout history, and he's put people, real living, breathing people physically in your life. And beloved, if you don't have friends, close friends, people, people that you you relate to regularly in this body, I would encourage you to go out. Don't wait around. You've got an aim. You want to you want to respond to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Don't wait around. Make a phone call. Make a contact. Have them over. Whatever it is, get close because this is God's design. Now, this call to follow a good example is followed by a warning, and this brings us to our second head this morning, and that is there's a caution by Paul regarding examples of those who are enemies of the cross. We're just going to pick this up piece at a time. But if you remember back in chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul states three times, beware, 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 and he warns them of a particular group of people. That was the legalism of the Judaizers, those people who said that Jesus was not enough. Having studied this, and I won't take the time to lay out all the reasons for my conclusion, but I believe at this point that he is shifting to a distinct, a different group of people. He starts over here in verse 2 saying, beware of the legalists. What he gets to in verse 17 is he says, beware of the licentious. That is those who take license and live an ungodly life, though they talk the talk. They do not walk the walk. There is a different group of professing Christians get this, who so gloried in the doctrine of justification by faith that they regarded their behavior to be of no account before God. The one group was saying, Jesus is not sufficient. This group is saying, Jesus is totally sufficient. So I can just go on living the party. I can just keep pressing on as I always have, pursuing the lusts of my flesh. So on the one hand, there's a warning against legalism in this chapter, and on the other, license. Look at verse 18. Notice that it begins with a little word, for. In other words, this is connected to what Paul has said in verse 17. He's telling the Philippians why he wants them to hook their wagon to mature and godly examples. 
He says, brethren, join me in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us for, and he's describing these deceivers and he's going to give us three things about them. He's going to tell us their number, he's going to tell us their end, and he's going to talk with us about their character that we might identify them. Let's look at their number, verse 18, four, note this word, many walk. Not a few, but many. It might remind you of a particular gate. It might remind you of a particular road. There's one that's narrow and there's one that's broad. And the narrow one has few who find it. The broad one has many upon it. And so it is here. Paul is making a broad statement. And I don't think he's saying that the Philippian church is filled with these kind of people. Because he's got too many commendations for the Philippians. He's warning them of a particular group of people who are very influential, and I think it's probably likely that they were itinerant teachers, which were common in the first century. People would come to town, and just like the Judaizers did, on the heels of Paul, and one group would corrupt corrupt the gospel one way, and this group corrupted the gospel another. We know they must have professed faith. That just follows logically, right? Because otherwise they would prove no threat to the Philippians at all. Why would anyone in the church be tempted to follow the example of ungodly men who denied Christ? Not only were they professing Christians, but they must have also had a very, a very uh, kind of carried weight in the church. The fact that Paul has to warn them about this people uh, these guys uh, must have meant that they had enough prominence and their message was syrupy enough, sweet enough, ticklish enough that, that Paul had to give the Philippians a heads up. In all likelihood, they were traveling teachers who came to tickle itching ears and we're going to call them deceived deceivers. I don't think they knew necessarily that they were in error. I think they were just libertines. They were just people who didn't understand really the nature of what genuine faith is and what it does to the Christian. And we'll be learning that as we go. Again, unlike the Judaizers, these folks boasted of the sufficiency of the work of Christ. They loved the doctrine because they believed that it gave them license to live in sinful indulgence and still hold out the promise of eternal life in the end. They were having a significant influence so that, as Paul says, many were following their teaching and their example. Let's look at their end. That was their number. They are many. They're everywhere, and they are still everywhere in the church today. And it would do you good to reflect on that today, to consider where we see this in our own world, where we see this in the American evangelicalism. He tells us of their end. Notice in verse 18 again, of whom I often told you, this is not the first time Paul's warned these people about them. He says, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. Folks, there are so many people who are convinced that if anyone even hints at the name Jesus, then they must be saved. I, I hope that, you, that you've allowed the word of God to cleanse that kind of thinking from your own noggin. It will lead you down bad roads. It will deceive you. 
Not all who name the name of Christ are in Christ. Paul says that here, crystal clear. He says, look, these kinds of people will come among you and they will profess faith and they will, they will say they have an alliance to Christ. They will know something of Christian doctrine. They'll present themselves as friendly, but really they're enemies. It's completely backwards. And that can be very confusing, can't it? And I love this about Paul. I don't know that there was ever as earnest a man as this. The destructive influence of these people had been so widespread in the churches that Paul has, has preached to that Paul is reflecting back as we do sometimes and considering those who are really not of us and went out from here. And we know the heartbreak of that, don't we? We know what that feels like. That is the deeper burden. It's not a fence that you've left. It's the grief over the reality that you've abandoned your only hope. And Paul thinks on the influence of these men, and it brings him to weep bitterly as he wrote. What a shepherd Paul was. How deeply this man felt for the flock of God. And how earnest was his heart? And why was he so impacted at the thought of so many deceived? Well, well, first of all, he certainly understood the tragedy of their deception. These were not friends of the cross. They were enemies of the cross. They were convinced that the cross work of Christ was sufficient, but the very pattern of their life denied the very purpose of the cross, which was to redeem us from sin and to reconcile us to God. Listen to Titus 2.14. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. This is part of what Paul means when he says, I'm trying to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. You see, Christ laid hold of me that he might redeem me from my sins, that he might purchase me out of slavery to my sin, and instead he would purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people who are uniquely his, a people who reflect him, a people who, who are zealous for good deeds just as Christ was. Do you see how the pattern of these people's lives was completely opposite of all of that? Oh, they professed Christ, but they did not possess Christ. They misunderstood the very purpose of the cross. It wasn't a ticket to sin. It broke the chains of their slavery to sin, and this they did not understand, this they did not know, and that's why Paul calls them enemies of the cross. They were opposed to the cross. They had denied its power, and for this, Paul wept because he secondly understood fully the eternal consequences of their deception. Notice that he says, though they professed Christ, their end, verse 19, look down at it, see it with your own eyes, their end is destruction. 
These were not sinners who were justified by faith heading for heaven. These were sinners who denied the power of the cross, who were heading for hell, and they didn't know it. Beloved, it cannot be said enough. I will say it to you till the day you boot me out of this pulpit. Those whom God justifies, he also what? Sanctifies. He will glorify us. That is true. But don't miss it. There is a sanctification, Hebrews 12, I don't recall the verse, without which no one will see the Lord. The life in Christ produces likeness to Christ. We must hang on to these things. To declare your confidence in the Christ, in Christ, and, and yet deny the power of the cross over sin is to no avail. It's a non-starter. It is a fake faith. Genuine faith in the gospel will change you radically. Here's Romans 8, verses 12 to 14. So then, brethren, he's coming to the conclusion of an argument. We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you have the Spirit of God, you will long to see your life conformed to obedience to Christ. It will be your sole passion to be pleasing to him in all things. The idea that you can profess Jesus and that's enough is pure folly. The new birth is just that, is the new creation now created in the likeness of Christ with the desires of Christ and you long to be obedient and you seek holiness of life. You seek to be like the Lord who saved you. These are the people that Paul is speaking of here and all who fall in line with their thinking who, who will in the end hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. And there are many of them. And Paul says it with tears. They're enemies of the cross and their end will be eternal destruction. And Paul reaches out to the Philippians and he says, brothers, sisters, I want to warn you against these people. You need to be alert, you need to be aware, and I plead with you with tears. Do not follow their example. Okay, Paul, well, what are they like? Well, he comes to tell us about their character. And just as Paul told us something about the, the legalists by three distinctives, remember they were dogs, they were evil workers, they were the false circumcision. So here he gives three prominent distinctives about the character of these licentious imposters. Number one, they were fleshly. Notice what he says there again in verse 19. He says, whose end is destruction whose God is their appetite. Whose God is their appetite. Literally, whose God is their belly. Now, what is someone's God? Well, you can evaluate what someone's God is by simply asking this question. What do they love most? And what do they serve? 
What do they love most and what do they serve? Whatever that thing is or those things are, those things are in fact your God. And what is it that these professing believers, these enemies of the cross who are bound for destruction, who, who is it or what is it that they love and serve? Is it God? Is it Christ? No, Paul says it's their belly. What did he mean by that? Well, this term for belly is a general term covering any organ that's in the abdomen. It's used of the stomach, it's used of the intestines, it's used of of the womb, it's even used of the inner man. What he's saying basically is their God is their gut. He's describing people who are just given over to sensuality, to their physical appetites. The Apostle John would refer to this kind of thing as as a characteristic of worldliness. It is the lust of the flesh. And so Paul is using this term figuratively to refer to their fleshly cravings. Obviously, gluttony, that would fit, right? Their their belly, it's used of sexual immorality as well. But the term is really can be used more broadly for any kind of natural craving, whether good or evil, whatever's pleasing to the senses. These people live to please their senses. That's what they live, to please themselves, ultimately. They're people whose highest allegiance and their pleasure, their deepest devotion is to their physical appetites. These are the people in in, in the 60s, I don't know how I got it, somewhere at a thrift store I thought it was cool, but I bought this little little doohickey when when I was a kid. I I think I was enamored with its little fuzzy, crazy hair coming out. But, but, But what it said on the bottom was, if it feels good, do it, right? I like that too, though I'm not sure I got the message when I was a kid. Here's the thing, this crowd, if it tastes good, eat it. And if it goes down smoothly, drink it. And if it flatters you, well, post it. And if, if, if you're tired, well, just give up. Take a nap. If, it, if, it, uh, if you, you look good in it, buy it. If you want it, go for it. If you find it entertaining, well, indulge it. I mean, what else has God created us for but pleasure in this life? And they worshiped at the altar of their cravings. You saying we shouldn't eat good food and we shouldn't drink good things and we shouldn't try to look appropriate, that we shouldn't put our best foot forward and comb our hair? No, I'm not saying any of that. But do you live for those things? You see, these people just lived whimsically. They just live for the passion of the moment to indulge the flesh. There's not much in this person's world for self-denial or self-discipline or self-sacrifice or any kind of suffering whatsoever. Their worldview and life philosophy is is pain-free and pleasure-full. Peter tells us and warns us in 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2 that men like this are going to infiltrate the church just as they've always infiltrated God's people, deceiving many, he says, who will follow their sensuality. They will love what they are selling. Paul, likewise, in Romans 16, 18, says, avoid men like these because they are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, their own bellies. And what a timely message, beloved, for our day. I mean, if the church today is guilty of anything, it is not setting up too many legalistic 
walls and barriers and, 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 and too strict a self-denial. If the church is guilty of anything today, it is certainly this, that we would somehow be given to excesses and carelessness and even flagrant sin in the name of Christ. We love the doctrine of justification and, and, and we're tempted to fall prey to that line of thinking that says, because I've been saved by the work of Christ, because the life of Christ has paid for my sin and his life, his righteous life, has been credited to me as righteousness. Praise be to God, now I can do what I want. No is right. For you are not your own. You've been bought with price. The price of the precious blood of the Lamb of God. There is so little talk today about the disciplined life, the self-controlled life, the obedient life, the sanctification of, of life. We just want to take it all in now and then get the goodies later too. Beloved, we are slaves. And there is an upward call. We are to be holy as he is holy. And ours is a day marked by many whose God is their belly. Well, not only were these fleshly, but they were secondly shameless. Look at the next description Paul gives them. Their God is their appetite and whose glory is their shame. In other words, these people gloried and they boasted for the things of which they should have been ashamed. You remember the man in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who was sleeping with his stepmother. And the church was boasting at how gracious they were to have such a sinner in their midst. Christ's grace is so magnanimous, his justification so profound that we can have people living like the devil in our midst and yet we rejoice. Paul says, put him out of the church. I've judged him already. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, did Paul have the gospel wrong? They boasted of their freedom in Christ, but they had little concern for love, little concern for holiness. They were just seeking to get theirs. Paul says in Ephesians 5, there are things that people do that shouldn't even see the light of day. They, they, we shouldn't speak of them. The Lord indicted Israel in, in Jeremiah 6.15 saying, my people have forgotten how to blush. Is that us? Do you want to know how confident I am in the sufficiency of Christ? I'll tell you, I sin willfully. I can dabble in the dangerous things. I can step into the darkness and still know that I stand in the light. John says, no, you can't. If you claim to be in the light and yet you walk in the darkness, you're deceived. And these people boasted about it. 
they love the world and the things of the world, and that should have brought them to shame and repentance. Oh, they reveled in the Christ, all right, because the cross allowed them to revel. That was their thinking. It is this very crowd that Paul speaks of in Romans 6 when he says their reasoning is let us continue in sin that grace may increase. Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So these deceivers were fleshly and they were shameless. And thirdly, he says they they were worldly. The last part of verse 19, these are they who set their minds on earthly things. Their minds were fixed, anchored in the things of this world. It's not that they just thought about worldly things and they were responsible to the tasks that God has given them in this world. No, it's that their minds were fixed there, set there. They were continually consumed with the things of earth. They had a heart that, that only spoke the language of horizontal. They had no concept spiritually. They had eyes only for what was earthly, and they were seeking what they might have in this life. And it's not that they were necessarily into all kinds of vile and sinful things. Some of them were, undoubtedly. But it's not all worldly wickedness necessary. He's just talking here about their posture of life, their predisposition. They were, they were just given to the earth. When it came right down to it, their citizenship is on earth, not in heaven. When it came right down to it, they loved what what could be seen, not what was unseen. They had hope for a future glory, to be sure, but only in as much that it would follow the earthly glory in which they were reveling. Their their pursuits were, were bound by the limitations of this world. Jesus could never have said of them what he says of his own when he says, they are not of this world, even as I'm not of this world. And these folks do not understand Peter when he speaks of Christians as aliens and strangers in this world. These people were very home in this world, and they pursued with gusto the very lusts that Peter was commanding us to abandon, those youthful lusts. Time's already sufficient for you to have done that foolishness. Get on with the pursuit of Christ, says Peter. And this crowd missed the Sunday when John commanded the church, do not love the world nor the things in the world. They missed that altogether. Their preoccupation is not Christ. It is not the kingdom of God. It is not the righteousness of God. It is not eternal matters. It is the world. Robert Johnstone, who was a 19th century Scottish preacher, said these words summarizing what Paul is teaching here. Quote, they have their thoughts and their affections occupied exclusively or supremely with the interests of this world. To make money or to spend it. To become learned or famous or influential. To go through life peaceably and pleasantly to gain in one way or another self-gratification. This is their aim and nothing more than this. God and holiness and heaven are ideas which have little power over them. They mind earthly things. These it is that occupy their thoughts. 
and are the objects of their real desires. These it is that they live. For these they run risks. For these they make sacrifices. End quote. Beloved, God is the giver of all good things. Yes, he is. But we dare not be consumed with the gifts and worship the gifts instead of the giver of the gifts. We need to be very aware that we do not follow the pattern of those who worship this creation rather than the creator, and we love and we serve the world and its lusts. You remember James's tirade, really, nothing short of a biblical tirade. You adulteresses, do you not understand that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. Mark it down. We are, as the phrase goes, in the world but not of it. And Paul reminds us how we should live in the present day. I just love the language from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, we are those who use the world, although we do not make full use of it. The world is not your pursuit, is it? The world is not your life. Oh, there are many great and glorious things that God has given us that should be received with gratitude. But I don't live for those things. I live for him. Beloved, we are eagerly waiting a savior from heaven, not a new pickup, not a gadget. What is consuming your heart as we come into the Christmas season? Worship of our king or worship of the things under the tree? Jeff was speaking this morning from Colossians 2.6, and sometimes it's a benefit to be there because you get such good things. And I was saw this verse, and it just screamed out to me. Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Beloved, conformity to Christ does not amount to the pursuit of the American dream. Don't ever be deceived about that. The believer does not allow his life to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the Spirit of God into conformity with Christ. Well, as we come to this table, I want to encourage you, beloved, that, and I know, I hope you don't go weary of me using that word. I just can't help it. John used it. Paul used it. I'm using it. You are loved of God. You are loved by me. You are loved by the shepherds of this flock. And I appeal to you. I appeal to you, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful about the cravings of your own heart's desires. Keep your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. You've got to be aware of these things, and you need to understand that your lifestyle ultimately will reveal in the end 
the reality of your faith? Do you walk in the pattern of Jesus or not? Do you walk in the pattern of Paul? Do you follow after other godly influences in your life? Or are you still dominated by being your own man, doing it your own way, and seeking after the, all of those passions and possessions and positions that, that 1 John 2 speaks about? Could it really be that Jesus bore the cross so that you might shamelessly sin with impunity? There's no way. Right? Could it really be that he spilled his blood that you might gain free access to heaven and yet live like a devil on earth? There's no way. You cannot be good enough to get to heaven by works of the law. That was the message of the Judaizers. Neither can you claim Christ and live in disregard for what pleases Christ. That was the message of these licentious deceivers. The justifying work of Jesus is always accompanied by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have one without the other. And I would encourage you as we come to the table yet again, examine yourselves. This table is for those who are in Christ, those who love Christ, those who are under the blood of Christ, those who are Christians. If you are not a Christian this morning, let these things pass. The Bible says if you take them inappropriately, you, you, you take them to your own demise, you take them to judgment. But believer in Christ, examine yourselves this morning and set your attention on the Lord Jesus Christ who died that we might be freed from sin. And may you be encouraged in the taking of these elements. He denied himself and he went to the cross to free you from sin. And the saving grace of God teaches us, says Titus 2, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. If I can get the deacons to come forward, I'm going to pray and lead us into this time. Our Lord, we hear these words and... They shake us because we know that we do not live the life that we ought to live. And Lord, I pray that you would make clear to each of us, even now as we examine our hearts, the reality of our salvation, that by your spirit you would testify to our spirits that we are in fact children of God, that you would affirm that very thing by an, an examination of the fruit of our lives, Lord, that we would see that we are not those who have set our minds on the things of earth. We're not those who pursue the lusts of the world and the flesh. Oh, Lord, we are, we are not those who are still enslaved to sin. Lord, I pray that you would encourage your people. And that as we come to the table this morning and we take again of, of the blood and, and of the body of Christ, that we would be reminded of all those great gospel texts, that you have caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, that you have removed our sins as far as east is from west, that you have washed us white as wool, white as snow, that you have, Lord, uh, finished 
what you started and that our sins no longer stand before you. Encourage your people in that. And for any who don't know you, Lord, I pray that even in this time, you might show them mercy and call them to yourself. In Christ's name.